brother. invite you to please rise for the call to worship. The call to worship this morning is from Psalm 24, verses 3 through 5. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, how good, how gracious, and how wonderful you are. Father, we pray that you would enable us to give you all praise, glory, and honor, that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be high and lifted up, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we would give you all praise. In Christ's glorious name, amen. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you to sing with me number 292, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence.
God is feed the six-winged seraph, cherubim with sleepless eyes, veil their faces to the presence, as with ceaseless voice they may be seated. For our time of confession and pardon, we'll be reading from Psalm 19. Psalm 19. I'll first be reading Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, leading us in a prayer of confession of sin, and then continuing on in verses 13 and 14. Psalm chapter 19, starting at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you again for the declaration in your word that you are holy, holy, holy that your word, your law, that the scriptures are perfect, breathed out by you. Oh, Father, again, we want to come before you in humility to repent and confess our sins before you. Father, we want to confess to you those times where where rather than rejoicing in your word or in your law, We scorned it to go our own way, to do things according to our own desire rather than to please you. Father, we want to confess to you those times over this last week where rather than approaching you in a holy, reverent fear and awe, we approached you with presumption, desiring things according to our fallen flesh rather than the Spirit. And Father, we confess to you those times of this last week where we desired things that were in disobedience to you more 
than the sweetness and precious truth of your word. So, Father, we take this time to confess to you those sins of thought, word, and action over this last week. We confess these to you now in our hearts and in our minds. Psalm 19, verse 13. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Know this, that if you trust and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that Jesus Christ crucified is the source of all your righteousness, holiness, and forgiveness with your heavenly Father. If you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, having been given the gifts of sincere repentance and true faith, know this, you are forgiven. You are dearly loved. You have been adopted as God's children to give him eternal praise, glory, and honor. In Christ's glorious name, amen. For a time of confession of faith, I invite you to read along with me Article 5 of the second main point of doctrine, Christ's death and human redemption through it. This morning we are reading together Article 5, the mandate to proclaim the gospel to all. If the person still has breath in their lungs and a beat of their if they are alive, we are to proclaim the gospel to them at all times and all contexts, for that is our great command in Christ. So I invite you to read along with me, Article 5, the mandate to proclaim the gospel to all. Moreover, it is the promise of the gospel that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have eternal life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be announced and declared without differentiation or discrimination to all nations and people to whom God in his good pleasure sends the gospel.
Beautiful depiction of Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Making disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them all Christ commanded because Christ sends us to go as his body. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Father, again, we, we are amazed by your grace, mercy, and love. You are just, you are holy, you are love, you are good. Everything you do is perfect and right, righteous and true. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you that you so love the world that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for those who would trust and believe in him, that he would satisfy the debt of our sins, that he would satisfy your holy, just wrath, so that we who are in him can have eternal life, eternal redemption, the forgiveness of sins, justification, and that by your grace we would partake in his glory at his glorious return. Oh, Father, how wonderful is the gospel. How wonderful is your love to your adopted children. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us to be in unity of one heart and one mind as your people, as the family of God, as the household of God, as the body of Christ, as the church of the living God. Help us, O Lord, to be of one heart and one mind, striving side by side for the one gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, crucified. O Father, we pray that you would help us to love you more, knowing your love for us, and to love one another. O Father, we pray that you would help us as the body to encourage, to support, to correct, to rebuke, to exhort with all patience and love one another, building each other up into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ, forgiving one another, loving one another, bearing with one another. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us as your son, Jesus Christ, pray that the church would be one, as you and your Son and the Holy Spirit are one. So, Father, we pray for such glorious unity, unity that can only be found in your truth, in your word. So, Father, we pray that you would grow us in your word, our hunger and desire for your word, our passion and desire to know that apart from you, we can do nothing. So, Father, we pray that you would Grow us in your word. Grow us up in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would help us to live more and more according to the Holy Spirit and less and less according to our old fallen flesh, again by your grace and mercy throughout our sanctification. Oh, Father, we pray that you would grow us in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness, and self-control. Oh, Father, we are absolutely dependent on you in all these things, that you would grow us, guard us, guide us in the faith, take us by the hand, hold us in the palm of your righteous right hand. Oh, Father, we thank you for your loving care. Father, we do pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world, facing persecution, opposition. Oh, Father. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Ukraine, fleeing their homes or caught in the midst of bombardment. Oh, Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, we pray for Reverend Mahai, other pastors and evangelists who are in the midst of taking in refugees, those who are fleeing. Father, we pray that you would help them to lift up your gospel and your truth. Oh, Father, we pray for peace. And we pray that your gospel, the light of your son, Jesus Christ, would shine forth in the midst of this darkness. Oh, Father, we just pray for your wisdom and guidance in all these things. Father, we do pray for those who are in positions of power and authority, not only those who are over us, but throughout the world. Oh, Father, we pray for wisdom. We pray for guidance. Again, oh Lord, we pray for those who are blinded by the things of this world, by deceptions and lies. Oh, Father, we pray that your light would shine. So we lift them up to you, oh Lord. Father, we do pray that you would continue to strengthen and guide us. Father, we pray for the marriages that are represented here. Oh, Lord, that these marriages would represent Ephesians chapter 5, Christ and the church. Father, I pray that you would help the husbands here to die for their wives, washing them in your word. Father, I pray for the wives to... Submit to their husbands with all respect and honor, lifting them up. Oh, Father, we pray that Christ and the church would be displayed in our marriages. Father, we pray for the families. Oh, Lord, we pray for the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, that they would know you, that they would love you, that they would serve you with their lives. Oh, Father, we pray that you would do what only you can do. Give them new hearts and transform minds through the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Oh, Father, we pray for all the lost. Oh, we cry out, Lord, that, that you would reach them, that you would give them new hearts and minds. Father, we pray that you would use us to lift up your gospel and your word. Father, at this time, we want to lift up to you the names of family, friends, those of you brought into our life who do not know you. Oh, Father, we cry out to you in our hearts and minds at this time that you would save them. We lift them up to you now.
Oh, Father, we pray that not only would you use us, but you would bring other believers into their lives to speak your word, to speak your gospel, to lift up the truth of your son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we thank you for your grace, mercy, and love. Father, we continue to pray for those who are in a time of, of difficulty or challenge, being held up, supported in your love and truth. Father, we continue to pray for Marcia as she continues in memory care. Father, we pray that you would just continue to grow your word, your truth, your love within her heart and mind. Father, we do continue to pray for grace. We thank you, O Lord, for the joy and strength you're giving her, even in the midst of this time of hospice care. Father, we just continue to pray for her, that you continue to grow her and guide her in the faith. Father, we do continue to pray for Didi and for Andy in the midst of her cancer treatments. Oh, Father, we pray that you would be their peace, their strength, their comfort, that their eyes would be turned to you. And Father, we just pray for wisdom and guidance. Help us, O oh Lord, to make the most of every opportunity to lift up the glorious truth of your Son, Jesus Christ, crucified. It is because of your grace and mercy that we say the prayer that our Savior tossed to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, the passage of scripture we're going to be looking at this morning is Isaiah 66. So I invite you to please rise and read with me Isaiah 66, verses 15 through 17. Isaiah 66, starting at verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. And let us pray. Oh, Father. We thank you for your word. Your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. 
Father, we pray that you would continue to grow and guide, refine, discipline, guide us in the truth. Your word is all authoritative, all sufficient, inerrant, and infallible. Father, we pray that you would grow us in the truth. For to know the truth of your son, Jesus Christ crucified, is to be set free. In Christ's glorious name, amen. You may be seated. At this time, I'd like to invite any children who would like to, if you'd want to come up to the front rows here. I invite you to come on up. Well, who here knows what a judge is? Do you know what a judge is? What's a, what's a judge? Very good. No, that's very good. So a judge is someone who has to make a decision. They have to make a decision. And often what we think of as judges in our court system and that is they have to decide whether someone is guilty or innocent. So we have this understanding of a judge, and this is important. Now, do you want a judge to be good or bad? What is judge like to be good? Like, not in bad Sure. Yeah, no, that's good. You want a judge to be good because a good judge will make decisions that are right, that are true, and that will lift up what is right and true. A bad judge will make decisions not based on what's right or wrong, but based on what may get them more money or more power or help them with those who have done wrong things. So you want a good judge. So in the passage of Scripture, we're seeing here God is depicted as a good and holy judge. But as a good judge, that means he must declare someone is guilty if they're guilty. And this is a very strong passage where God is saying, everyone who does not trust and believe in Jesus Christ is guilty and face the judgment that he talks about in our passage. So we're going to hear of God's anger and God's wrath and God's fury. But when you hear those words, I want you to think of Jesus Christ and that God so loved the world. He sent his son that whoever would believe in him, that because of Christ believing in him, rather than being guilty, we are made innocent. So I want you to think about that as we go through our passage of scripture this morning. So let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are a good judge. Father, we know that we are guilty. 
And we need your son, Jesus Christ, to make us innocent. Through his perfect life, death on the cross and resurrection. Father, we pray that you would help us to trust and believe in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You guys head back to your seats. Throughout Isaiah, there are two key realities of someone being saved. Salvation involves these two key realities. And you cannot have salvation if you have one and not the other. So this is one of the key themes that have been established in Isaiah. First and foremost, salvation means that we who are sinners, and that's everyone, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, that we are under God's holy, just condemnation and wrath. The wages of sin is death. And the second death depicted in Revelation is the eternal conscious torment of hell. That is the situation every descendant of Adam and Eve is in. Unless the condemnation is removed from them. And the only way condemnation can be removed from a guilty sinner is if Christ pays the penalty of our sins, that he satisfies the holy just wrath that we deserve. Then we can go from condemnation to justification. That's the glorious reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. So salvation is always first and foremost that we need to be made right with God. We need to go from being under holy, just condemnation to being adopted, forgiven, and loved by God through the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. So that's always first and foremost what gospel, what the gospel is about and what salvation is about. But that is not all that entails salvation. And what Isaiah has done again and again is repeatedly show that another key component of salvation isn't just us being made right with our Heavenly Father. It's also that all of our enemies and all of God's enemies will ultimately be destroyed, be removed, so that we would face ultimately and eternity without persecution, without suffering, without pain, without evil, without sin. So Isaiah continually lifts up salvation, not only as us being made right with God, but also then all of God's and therefore all the enemies of the people of God are ultimately removed. 
condemned, and thrown into hell. That's a constant theme in Isaiah. That's a constant theme in Scripture. So much so that Isaiah not only has such chapters as Isaiah 52 and 53, the great glorious chapters that depict Jesus Christ crucified, some of the greatest gospel passages in all of Scripture are in there, which is talking about, first and foremost, how we are saved, but also Isaiah ends with this depiction. I want you to open up your Bibles and look with me at the end of Isaiah. Sadly, we're almost there. Tears in my eyes. I love Isaiah. We're almost finished with our Isaiah series. Three years we have been going through Isaiah. I hardly know what to do with myself as we near the end. But this is how Isaiah comes to a conclusion. And it's just past the passage of Scripture we're looking at this morning. But this morning is a part of this conclusion of Isaiah. So Isaiah 66 Verse 24. Well, let's start in verse 22. So this is how Isaiah ends. Isaiah 66, verse 22. As for the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your offspring and your name remain. Now, that offspring are the redeemed, the offspring according to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So this is the offspring, all the adopted children of God, that God establishes through the death of his son for their sins and satisfies the wrath they deserve. That's the offspring. These are all the offspring according to the promise given to Abraham that those who have faith will be righteous. So shall your offspring in your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. So that's the first key reality of salvation is God will redeem. He will save a remnant of every tribe, nation, language, and people. They will be the church And they have been made right with God through Jesus Christ in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So that's salvation first and foremost. But here's the last verse of Isaiah. And it's Isaiah 24. And they. So who's the they? The they are all those who have been saved who have been made right with God, who have been given the gifts of true repentance and faith through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All those who are abiding in Jesus Christ in whom the Holy Spirit abides. That's the they. This is how the book ends. Isaiah 66, verse 24. And they, all the redeemed, 
shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So you have this two-part depiction of the ultimate return of Christ. That first and foremost, we who are redeemed look at the coming Christ. And as Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, we're dumbstruck. We're literally speech. We're in awe because we will get to see Christ come in all his glory. So you have that first and foremost looking But also you have this depiction on the redeemed seeing God's holy, just judgment rendered for eternity. And both of those glorious sights give God all praise, glory, and honor. So that's the two-part aspect of salvation depicted again and again and again and again in Scripture. And Lord willing, not only this morning, but then the next two, our last two messages in Isaiah, we're going to look again at that two-part reality of salvation. So I just share that with you to get a sense of these last three messages in the Isaiah sermon series. So again, if we look at our text, Isaiah 66, verse 15. Verse 15. For behold... The Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. The behold of verse 15 is pointing back to Isaiah 66 verse 14. So let's go back to that. That's the transition verse before this last section of Isaiah. So Isaiah 66, verse 14, here's this transition verse. Isaiah 66, 14, you shall see, and the you there are the redeemed, the saved. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. That's depicting the the joy and the peace and the love and the rejoicing of all those who have been saved by God's grace and mercy. Isaiah 66, 14b, and he shall show his indignation. That's the word. His indignation against his enemies. And that's, as I said, these last three messages, these last three sections of Isaiah continue to lift up God's joy and love for the redeemed and his indignation and wrath of those who continue to rebel against him, who continue to trust and believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So that's where we are in Isaiah The indignation, the holy, just wrath and fury of God against those who continue to rebel against him and his word. 
We see this depiction earlier in Isaiah. If you go to Isaiah 30, we see where this depiction of God's wrath and anger and fury is depicted against the Gentile nations. And this is where Jonah would fully understand and grasp this. This is where, yeah, that makes sense. That God would show his indignation against the Gentile nations. So that's Isaiah 30. But as we go through this passage, it doesn't end with the Gentiles. It's going to be the same story for the Jews, for anyone who does not repent and have faith. But first, the Gentiles. Isaiah 30 depicts the coming holy, just wrath of God in the day of judgment when Jesus Christ returns and renders judgment. Isaiah 30, starting at verse 27. Behold, it's the same, verse 15, for behold, it's depicting the ultimate justice and judgment of God over sinners who are not saved. Isaiah 30, verse 27, behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck. And here's one of the most powerful depictions of God's judgment in Scripture. To sift the nations with the sieve of destruction. There it is, to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction. Now, what does a sieve do? A sieve, the purpose of a sieve is to only let a certain size of particle through and and keep what is larger out. It's it's your your sifting, your sieving, your, your reducing in that regard. And ultimately, the sieve of God's judgment is his holiness and righteousness. So unless you are holy as God is holy, unless you are righteous as he is righteous, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you do not pass through the sieve, then you pass through the sieve of his judgment and experience eternal wrath, fury, anger, and destruction. That's literally what Isaiah 30 is depicting here. Again, verse 28, to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. That's ultimately what Revelation 1 depicts as those who continue in their rebellion and unrepentance and and continue in disbelief, well, God gives them over, hardens their heart as they have hardened their own hearts. So that's where we see ultimately the bridle is placed and they're just led to their destruction. Isaiah 30, verse 30. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstone And the nation in the first focus given here are the Assyrians, the Assyrians. But this is a depiction of 
those of every nation who ultimately will not trust and believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Isaiah 30, verse 31, the Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. And then you have depicted here the music of the descending rod, rod of iron of God against those who are in rebellion against him. It actually produces a song of his glory as he slaughters and destroys the wicked. That's verse 32. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres, battling with brandished arm, he will fight with them. And then you have here the depiction of eternal hell already stated in Isaiah 30. Verse 33, for a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. So you have this depiction of God's ultimate just judgment against sin. It's a striking image of God in all his holiness, all his justice, all his love, all his truth, all his holiness, rendering just judgment. Ultimately, all these imageries, whether it's in Isaiah 30 or what we're looking at in Isaiah 66, verses 15 through 17, they have an example. And what's the first foremost example of this? It's Sodom and Gomorrah. That is the eternal example of what God will do at the return of Jesus Christ. So Sodom and Gomorrah becomes the example. So again, if you look at Genesis 18, verse 23, you have the beginning of Abraham. And Abraham is trying to negotiate with God on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what Abraham is trying to do is, is Abraham is trying to establish this truth. It's Genesis 18, verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, this is after the angels came and told Abraham that they were going to Sodom and Gomorrah to render his judgment against them. So this is Abraham's response, Genesis 18, 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And of course, what's the response to that? No. No. No, God would not do that. And Abraham starts at 50 and works his way all the way down to 5. And There's no one righteous. No, not one. That's the whole purpose of this. When God renders his just holy judgment, if there is any shock or surprise or amazement, it's that anyone is saved. It is not that anyone would go to hell. 
That's the reality of what Scripture is depicting here. So Genesis 19, verse 24, we see where God renders his holy just judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19, verse 24, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Complete destruction of all that was living. That's the depiction here given in Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 25, and he overthrew those cities and all the valleys and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Verse 26, remembering God's grace and mercy, the angels brought Lot and his wife and two daughters, literally took them by the hands and drugged them out. That's how they saved them. Verse 26, but Lot's wife behind him looked back. Because that's where her heart was. That's where her treasure was. That's where her life was. That's where her identity was. It was in Sodom and Gomorrah, not in God. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, boom, and she became a pillar of salt. Instant judgment. Verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So this imagery is so strong of Sodom and Gomorrah that that becomes the depiction of God's eternal just judgment against sin. It becomes the key depiction. You see Jude and also Peter referring to it as such. First Jude, if you look to Jude, verses 7 and 8, this is how Jude interprets God's just judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude, verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. That's the unquenched, unsatisfied, holy, just wrath and fire of God's anger. It is eternal. Verse 8a of Jude. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams. And here's the two chief depictions of sin, of wickedness of all the ungodly. Number one, defile the flesh. Number two, reject authority. All sin is summarized in those two rebellious, defiant acts before God, that they defile the flesh. They live according 
to the passions and lusts of their fallen flesh rather than the law, the word, and the truth of God. And they do that because, number two, they reject authority. They reject God's authority over them. And they are, as they are not willing to submit before God, they submit in no way before his word, his authority, and those whom God places over them. The vile of the flesh reject authority. Peter does the same thing. If you go to 2 Peter chapter 2, again, we have this depiction of what Isaiah 66 is depicting for us, the holy, just wrath and judgment of God. If you go to 2 Peter 2, here again, what's the first and foremost example used? It's Sodom and Gomorrah. So 2 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an, there's our word again, example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So what ultimately happens to everyone of every tribe, nation, language, people, regardless of how powerful or how powerless, regardless of how rich or poor, regardless of anything, what ultimately happens to those who are not in Jesus Christ, in whom the Holy Spirit does not dwell. Those who do never come to true, sincere repentance and faith, the depiction here is of extinction, eternal destruction, being removed from God's presence and no longer able to inflict any harm, any persecution, any suffering on the people of God. Verse 7 of 2 Peter 2. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, that's that defiling the flesh through unnatural ways. Verse 8. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under judgment until the day of judgment. That's what the Lord knows. Again, that's what Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of depicting. That's what Isaiah is declaring again in our passage, that God knows how to do that. He knows how to to rescue the godly from trials. He knows how to keep us, to grow us, to discipline us, to guide us so that we will persevere to the end for his glory and his power. He knows how to rescue the godly from trials. That doesn't mean that if you're a Christian, all trials, pain, suffering is removed from you on this heaven and earth. No, 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 that, that isn't what's being said here. What's being said here is in the midst of whatever persecution, suffering, hardship, even martyrdom, God's peace, 
that passes understanding, his joy unspeakable, his righteous right hand will hold his children tight. And nothing will be able to take you from his hand or separate you from his love. That's what's being declared here. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And you see how this is a part of our salvation, a part of our joy, a part of our peace, a part of our eternal comfort is and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, we seek no vengeance because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We, we know God will bring his just holy judgment and vengeance. That's why what are we called to do on this heaven and earth? Proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel to everyone, to your enemy, to those who hate you, to those who are killing you. I can't tell you of how many testimonies have been passed down to me through my travels in Indonesia and Africa and, and in the Middle East of those who in their dying moments of torture and death at the hands of their enemies did what Jesus on the cross did and did what Stephen did when he was being stoned to death and martyred when they cried out, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And their last breaths were ones of proclaiming, trust in Jesus Christ crucified and you can have life and forgiveness. In their death. So vengeance is not ours. Vengeance is God's. Knowing the justice and holiness of God sets us free from seeking our own vengeance, from our own wrath and fury. It sets us free from that. It's, it sets us free so that we can proclaim the gospel to all people in all contexts at all time. That's part of the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. So again, Isaiah 66, verse 15 for behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Verse 16, for by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Now, ultimately, we see here the depiction of God, not only with his fire of judgment, but also with the sword, slaughtering the wicked and the rebel, and that the slain of the Lord will be many, many. This is a depiction here, not only by Isaiah in the Old Testament, that is continually depicted throughout all of Scripture and repeated again and again, in the New Testament. That's what Solomon and Gomorrah is an example of for each and every one of us. Well, ultimately, how verse 16 is ultimately fulfilled 
is in Jesus Christ. He is the one who wields the sword. He is the one who is to judge the living and the dead. He is the one who comes in all his glorious victory and ultimately renders God's just holy judgment. To see the ultimate fulfillment of this in Jesus Christ is to go to Revelation 14. So I invite you to turn to Revelation 14. Revelation 14, starting at verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The Lamb being Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, the Redeemer of those who trust and believe in him, and also the just, holy, sword-wielding judge against those who do not. This is the lamb who is the line of Judah. This is the king of kings and Lord of lords who is the redeemer. Again, verse 11 of Revelation 14. And we see the imagery of Sodom and Gomorrah and the imagery of our passage of Isaiah is all being woven together here. Revelation 14, verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So what is it to worship the beast and to take the mark? That is depicting those who, like the first three soils of the parable, the sower and the soils, that they get scorched by persecution opposition, and they would rather have their earthly life that leads to ultimate destruction than to have eternal life and face earthly persecution and hardship. So they, they get scorched. Or, or those who, who grow up a part of the church, yet the thorns and thistles of the cares of the things of this world choke them out. And they'd rather have the pleasures of this world and then eternal conscious torment than to suffer and lose possibly everything of this world and gain eternal life. That's what it is to worship the beast and take the mark. It is ultimately to try to save your earthly life rather than to lose it for Christ's sake. That's what it is. That's what's depicting in whatever form or whatever way that takes place. It is an ultimate apostasy 
where you ultimately say, Christ is not worth it. He's not worth the pain. He's not worth the persecution. He's not worth the suffering. He's not worth losing the things of this worth. Christ isn't worth it. That's what it is. To worship the beast and take the mark. That's what it's depicting. Ultimately, Revelation 19 shows Jesus, the one who cast into this fire of God's judgment as the one who wields the sword, as we saw depicted in Isaiah 66, 16. So Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. Remember in Isaiah 66, verse 15, it talks about the the army, the chariots, the, the holy vengeance of God. Well, here is the ultimate fulfillment of it. Revelation 19, 11, Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And the armies of heaven, here's all the angelic host, and all their depicted purity in obedience to God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And his mouth, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. That's what the sword is, is God's word, God's law, God's truth. That's what we are judged according to. The standard of holiness and righteousness of Jesus Christ and the word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the ultimate fulfillment depiction of what we're seeing in these last verses of Isaiah 66. The glorious hope of the redeemed and the horrific horror of the reprobate. That's what we see being depicted here. That Jesus is the greatest hope and and joy and love for those who've been saved by God's grace and his return And for those who continue ungodly, unrighteous, unholy, because they will not repent and believe, Jesus is the greatest terror and horror of the depiction of God's holy just judgment. That's why Revelation depicts the kings, the merchants, those great and small at the return of Christ who are not in Christ, who do not trust and believe in Christ as their Savior, as running into caves and crying out that mountains would cover them so that the eyes of Jesus Christ would not fall upon them and his judgment not come. That's why Revelation depicts that Christ in his second coming, all the heavens and earth are removed so that everyone is laid naked and bare before the eyes of Christ. There's no no longer any hiding. There's no longer hiding behind any deception, behind any lie. 
where everything's exposed. The light of God permeates everything as depicted here in his word. For me, the most graphic word of Isaiah 66, verse 16, for by the fire will the Lord enter in the judgment and by his sword will all flesh with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. It's the word many is the graphic warning depicted here in Isaiah 66. This is what Jesus teaches upon in Matthew 7. If you look at Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus touches on this very passage of Scripture and that key word, many. And here's how Jesus renders his interpretation of Isaiah 66, verses 15 through 17. Here's Jesus' commentary on this depiction of God's holy just judgment. Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. This is a parallel with Luke 13. Luke 13, Jesus says, enter through the narrow door. So whether it's a narrow door in a house or a narrow gate, the whole depiction is there is one way of salvation. There is one way of going from condemnation to justification. There is one way of going from the wrath of God to the love of God. There's one way. And that way is Jesus Christ. And that way is true repentance and true faith in Jesus Christ. It's the one way. So there's one way. Again, Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide. And the way is easy. That leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. That's it. That's where Jesus is taking up this word in our text, and he's applying this universally. And those who enter by it are many. Verse 14 of Matthew 7, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Now, what? What does this mean that the way is hard? I, I thought we were saved by, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That, but that's, that's exactly right. That's true. That's what is depicted in Ephesians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 1 all the way through. The whole Bible makes clear that, that we are saved not by our works. There's nothing we can do to earn or work or contribute to our salvation. Jesus even says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For Jesus says, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So how can Jesus be both a light and easy burden and the way of salvation in him be hard? 
So how, how is that both correct? When Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, he's speaking to all those by the work of the Holy Spirit and God's grace have come to understand you are weary and heavy laden with your sin, with your wickedness, and that you can do nothing to save yourself. That's the weariness. That's the burden that God brings about for those who are being saved. You realize that you are being crushed under God's holy just judgment. So Jesus says, those who have that understanding, Jesus sets you free from that condemnation. He pays it all on the cross. He satisfies it all. He does everything to make you right with God. So that's where his, his burden is light. And the, and the way is, is easy because he has done it. So then how is it hard? And how is it so narrow? Because all that coming to salvation in Jesus Christ means then is you have to die. That's all it means. You have to die to yourself. You have to die to your pride. You have to die to your self-righteousness. You have to die to the things of this world that are passing away. Jesus has done it all. All to him he, we owe. And in receiving Christ, that means our death. That's how it is narrow and hard. It's the same parallel teaching as in Luke 13. Luke 13, verse 23, Jesus is literally asked by someone, Lord, are those who are going to be saved be few? He's literally asked this by someone in the crowd. And in Luke 13, Chapter 13, verse 24, here he responds. It's a parallel teaching to what we have in Matthew. Luke 13, 24, Jesus says this, strive. And what's our main striving? Dying to ourself and giving God all praise, glory, and honor. A life of complete gratitude, rejoicing, and submission to God. That's the striving we do, knowing that we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Therefore, our life is one of complete gratitude and rejoicing in what Christ has done on our behalf. That's the striving. And we're striving out of that gratitude to please God rather than please ourselves. That's the death. That's the dying daily. So Luke 13, 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Why will they not be able? Because ultimately, when they're confronted with this reality, in Christ is eternal life, eternal joy, eternal peace, Everything that is good, everything that is holy, everything that is true, 
Oh, that sounds great. You just have to die. So sadly, there are too many churches in the visible church and too many who profess belief in the visible church that that's too hard of a teaching. So what too many churches and too many of those who claim to be Christian have done is they've come up with an ulterior gospel. And what's the alternative gospel? You can have both Christ and all his promises and you can still have the world. That's the false gospel that sells. Oh, does that sell? Oh, is it profitable? And you can fill a lot of pews and you can make a lot of money. And that is too rampant within this fallen world. But that is not salvation and is not the gospel of God depicted in Jesus Christ and depicted in his word. As the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 1, that brings about damnation, not salvation. So Isaiah 66, verse 17 What's powerful about verse 17 is God has spoken of this judgment in the many and lest his people of the descendants of Abraham, according to the flesh here that is being spoken to, think he's only talking about Gentiles. Verse 17, he says, I'm talking to you who claim to be my people. So this is verse 17. Those who sanctify and purify themselves. Okay, in the language of Isaiah, this would be those who are still going to the temple. They're offering their sacrifices. They're, they're, they're contributing to the worship of the temple. They're, they're offering prayers. They go pray. They're, they're going through all the Sabbath that is prescribed in the law. They're, they're doing that on the Sabbath. So, but what do they do the rest of the week? They live like the rule. They live like the rule. That's what verse 17 is saying. Verse 17, those who sanctify and purify themselves to then go, that's what's being depicted here, to then go into the gardens. Now, what's wrong with a garden? Well, this is the third time that these gardens have been depicted in Isaiah. And the focus is these gardens are areas where there are idols and cultic practices according to the idols and false gods of the nations around them. So when it says gardens, this is the third time Isaiah's used this imagery, it's talking about those places of pagan idolatry and immorality. That's what the gardens are. So God's warning, as he warned in chapter one, remember chapter one, Isaiah? God says, I'm not gonna listen to your prayers. 
You come to my temple and you lift up hands to pray to me and whoop. What happens when you lift up your hands? I see the blood of your wickedness on your hands. God says, I don't stop it with the sacrifices. Because you offer all these external sacrifices to, quote, make you holy and pure. But your heart is one of unbelief and wickedness. And through the rest of the week, you just live like the world. You live according to the ways of the devil. And you just indulge your fallen flesh. And yet you think you can come in and give me this one day or give me these acts and you're fine with me? Remember, that's Isaiah. And Isaiah says, you're out of your mind. You're literally out of your mind. Isaiah says at one point, you're you're so delusional and deceived in your wickedness, you can't even think straight. That's the indictment given. So that's verse 17. Those who sanctify and purify themselves, not to be holy as God is holy, not to live according to his word, but to do what? To go into the gardens following one in the midst. Now, that's what that's depicting there is rather than following God, then you follow whatever person of the world is leading you in the things that are false. So you then just follow whatever godless idol or false teacher comes along. And you just follow them with your thoughts, words, and actions. You just live according to them. According to the rule. That's what it is to follow. You're not following God. You're following the world. And here we see the practices of the nations around eating pig's flesh and the abomination of mice. And what happens to all those who purify themselves just to live contrary to God's word? They shall come to an end Together, declares the Lord. And that coming to an end together is depicting ultimately the last judgment, the day of judgment, when Christ cast all those who have ever lived who are outside of him through unbelief and rebellion into eternal conscious torment hell. That's the coming to an end together. Just as all of God's elect will be gathered together to be before him in all joy and rejoicing, all the ungodly will be gathered together and brought to an end in one moment. That's what this is depicting. The ultimate just judgment of God. It's passages like this that are heavily pointed to throughout the New Testament. And one that, that strikes me with this warning is 1 Peter 4. I just want to end with these verses. 1 Peter 4, verse 17. Peter is writing to the church. And Peter has, been, has made clear since chapter 1 that those who are saved are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, have been elected by the Father Christ has died for them. The spirit dwells within them that we are saved all by God's grace, mercy, 
in love. So, so Peter establishes that, just as all of Scripture establishes how we are saved. Peter also makes clear that if you have been truly saved, you, you have eternal life. You cannot lose your salvation, for the eternal spirit dwells within you, and God holds you in his righteous right hand. And then Peter gives this warning, just as Isaiah 66, 17 gives this warning to God's covenantal people. Here we see where 1 Peter 4, verse 17 through 19, gives this warning to the church. And here is Peter's warning. 1 Peter 4, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let us suffer. There it is. Pick up our cross and follow Christ. Let us suffer according to God's will in trusting. There it is. In trusting their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's it. Verse 19 is one of the greatest summaries of our sanctification process and of our response to the warnings and the glorious depiction of God in Isaiah 66, verses 15 through 17. What is the response of those who are in Christ? It's verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We entrust We give everything over to God because he has given us everything. Out of gratitude and thanksgiving, we have been saved from his wrath. We are abiding in his love. And if God is for us, no one and nothing can stand against us. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you for the depiction of your holiness, of your love, of your justice, of your goodness, of your jealousy, depicted in these scriptures this morning. Father, we thank you that because of the person work of your son, Jesus Christ, those of us who have been given the gifts of repentance and faith, can boldly, in confidence, come before your throne of grace. Oh, Father, I pray that if there's anyone who who has a false security and a false assurance, who do not have true repentance and faith, Father, I pray that in your grace and mercy, you would bring them from death to life. Father, I pray that you would help us to entrust everything to you, for you are the source of everything that is life.
In Christ's glorious name, amen. Well, I invite you to please rise and sing with me. Number 525, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us.
Let us receive the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I invite you to close with me with the doxology.